and open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be picking back up where we left off last week. We'll be finishing chapter 4. We're going to take verses 9 through 22. Well, a little bit of clearance needs to be happening here. All that singing. Praise the Lord. Um, So we'll be finishing up, and of course, we will be moving right on into uh, Titus uh, next week, Lord willing, unless the Lord comes back and takes us home, uh, we'll be picking right up and starting a new book. We'll be picking right back up. We go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And hopefully you've been following along with us. If not, uh, it's not too late to go back and listen to the recordings there on our website at uh, calvarychapelnc.org. And you certainly go back and look and listen if you did not get a chance to go through the First and Second Timothy, highly, highly recommend it. But uh, today we're going to see personal closure. Personal closure of Paul because he knows he's at the end of his life. And as you know, you're at the end of your life. You want to bring closure on some a few things that are at the top of your mind as you're laying there, or in this case as he is locked up in a, the prison there in Rome, he had a lot of time to think about what he wanted to say as he was writing this letter to his protege, his young son of the faith, Timothy, there in Ephesus. But let's open up in prayer, and then we will get started in the verses. Father, we again thank you for this day you've given us. We rejoice. We're glad in it. Or thank you for your mercies that are every new every day and your grace that is so sufficient for where we are at in our lives each and every day. I pray, Holy Spirit, you will move in a mighty way right now and you will touch the hearts of each and every person who is listening and hearing, not only this day, but even in future listenings, Lord, that they would just be ministered to by your Spirit where they're at right there personally because you are a personal God involved in their lives and you desire to be more and more involved in their life, Lord. So I pray that each and every one of us will desire for a deeper, not only knowledge and understanding of who you are, but a deeper love for you and wanting to do, be obedient to what you have for us to do in our lives. We thank you and praise you for this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. And we all said, Amen, Amen. Paul, last words from a Roman prison. And we're going to see him bring closure, personal closure on a few things as he writes this letter, his last letter, his last words that are recorded that we know of uh, to his young, uh, this young man named Timothy who is the elder, the pastor in Ephesus, who Paul discipled up in the ministry. And he turned around. You have to get in the mindset of where Paul is at. He's writing a letter to a young man who has invested his life into this man, into the ministry, so that he was handing everything over. His entire life ministry is handing it over to this young man named Timothy. Imagine if you started a business from nothing and you've been doing it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and you've been pouring into a young man's life or a young lady's life to take over that business and you're just, what would be the last words and thoughts you would want to get to them so that they would understand how to continue the good work that God had started? The verses today are really for you and I as well because All of us are going to be at a point in our life where we're at a point where you're going to have to bring closure in your life in due time. Where all of us are, are, unless the rapture happens, your life is drawing closer and closer to the Lord coming back for you if you're a believer. If you're a non-believer, your life is still drawing to a closure. It's just not heaven. It's hell. But we're all drawing closure. Seasons of life, 
different periods of times in our life or what we were an old an old life now we're in a new life we we're, we're dead and you know the sins have been put away now we have this new life in Christ and we're as a Christian trying to lo- grow and mature and understanding I mean there's just always sometimes finds closure and this is where Paul is a young man who he considered a son son of the faith And we know, as we saw in the scripture last week, that Paul was ready to die. He had known that he met that first council there. He's been, you know, re-imprisoned. And he's now, he met that first trial with Nero. He knew. He knew he was going to die. It was only a matter of time he was going to be beheaded because of, that's how they treated Roman citizens. Not, they, they weren't crucified. They were beheaded. And he knew this was coming. And we see that he, I'm, my life has been poured out. I've given everything. I have run this race and I'm finishing well. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to cross that line and do it to the best of my ability by God's strength and God's ability and God's calling on my life right to the very end. I'm not giving up. But he says, be watchful of all things in verse 5 of chapter 4 to Timothy. Endure the afflictions, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. He's encouraging this young man. It's going to be difficult times, but don't give up. Regardless of what you're seeing around in the culture, regarding the government takeover and all these things. Remember, Rome absolutely hated Christians at this point in time in history. And it was not good to be a Christian. The government absolutely was seeking after you as a Christian to kill you. That is not a good government to live in. But he said in verse 6, I'm... I'm ready. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My departure is at hand. The last few words that he's writing to this, in this epistle, this letter to Timothy, we find today. And he starts in verse 9 and he says to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly. This last section of the epistle, he says to Timothy, come now, Timothy. I want you to come now. I want to see you face to face. I want to put my eyes on you. I want to hear you. I want to see you. I want to just feel you. And he says it here, and he also says it in verse 21 of chapter 4, how he wants to please show up, come see me. Historically, we know that this is be about the spring of A.D. 68 that he is writing this letter in the springtime of 68. There in the prison, the Mamertine prison in Rome, the worst place you would ever want to be in prison. They'd walk the dark, the dark wall, the dark. Um, hall that would lead you to this place where they would strip you down, put a rope around under your arms and lower you down into this infested cave of complete darkness. Feces everywhere. Maybe a little straw to possibly lay down. Cold, damp. These were his final days of his life. Remember in his first prison, imprisonment in Rome, he was under house arrest. So he was in a villa. People could come and go. There was all lots of people coming to see him. It was just coming and he was able to write freely and all the letters we see. But the second imprisonment is not the same experience. He's finding that he's very much uncomfortable, very much cold, And we will find very much alone. No one able to come freely to come see him. Not a whole lot of light. Health conditions are not good. 
But the joy and the peace that this man had, as we've read through 2 Timothy, the peace and the joy and the focus was so much on his Lord and on the making sure the transition of the ministry to others such as Timothy took place and took place properly. We see that the emphasis of Paul's letter here at the very closure, his personal closure, is about speed. Do not, you know, just let Timothy get here. It's going to be too close. I don't know when I'm going to die because he didn't have an idea. He just knew that he had his first trial and it could be anywhere from a month to several months. But whatever it is, get here, Timothy. And it's important to understand this because we think in the mentality of today, just send the text, man. Just send the email. Just, you know, everything's electronic and immediate. But in those days, he had to write it, then give it to someone, we will see here, uh, Tachikas, to take it and travel all the way to Ephesus to give Timothy this letter, who then will then to look at it, make a decision to get everything in order, and then come back to Rome. That's going to take months. So t- Paul was telling Timothy, you don't have time to sit around and Think about it and pray about it for the next few weeks. But you also have to understand, Paul trusted God with his life. And he trusted that he would protect Timothy in his life as well. Because he was requesting Timothy to leave probably somewhat security in Ephesus, leave the ministry to come to see him, and he's going right into the lion's den of Nero, the Roman government who absolutely hated Christians. At this point in time, if you remember, and this is historically, we know that the, uh, the, um, uh, Rome had burnt at that point. July 19th, it would be 64. So it's been four years since Nero burned down or tried to burn down the section of the Rome that he did not like, the poor section. And then he turned around and blamed the Christians for doing the burning down, even though it was him and his government that was doing it. But the people were rising up and he turned them and used the Christians as scapegoats for why Rome was burning. And that means the entire culture turned on Christians. And Nero was burning Christians on stakes to light up the gardens in Rome. Now here you are, Paul, dad, telling his son, Timothy, come see me. Come in to the most dangerous place you can be. But Paul knew that God's hand of protection was on Timothy. Amazing mindset at the closure of his life. And how important it was for him to see his son in the faith one more time. I pondered on this week and I say, if I'm at the end of my life, who do you think I would want to reign up around my bedside? I would want Kathleen right there. I want Heather and Sarah right there. (laughs) Maybe more importantly, I want Jackson and Emma. I want my grandbabies around that bedtime too. And the son-in-laws can come, of course. But you want those who you've poured into and you've loved and protected and poured into their lives. You want closure and you want to say the last few things that are on your heart to the ones you love. Amen? Here's Paul today, closing a letter to Timothy. Now, we don't know if Timothy ever was able to make it back to Rome to see Paul before he was beheaded. He probably was beheaded about two months, historically two months after finished writing this letter. Just two months. And so we see this today. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly, Timothy. Why? We see in verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus 
for Dalmatia. So we see here Paul's emphasis and remembers that those who have left him, he's writing to Timothy, said, Timothy, I'm alone. This is what's happening. The people that were here, that was here to help me in the ministry, that was here to, to encourage me in the ministry, I'm in prison. Remember, prison didn't have all the luxuries that we see in the prison system today. If you were to be fed, someone had to bring you the food. If you were going to have any change of clothes or clean you up or do anything or take care of you, if you got sick, the people who loved you were going to take their risk to come in to try to help you. And remember, what would you as a Christian do to go help another Christian knowing that the government prison system was about to snatch you up right in a minute because they knew you were part of the movement or the sect that Paul was part of? Well, he sees right here that Demas, who's been mentioned early in the scriptures. Here's a man that back in Philemon chapter, uh, chapter, verse 24. Here was a man that as Paul was writing that letter, he says, here's Demas, my fellow laborer. The guy who was right next to me working and plowing and seeding and watering and doing the ministry together. Then we see later on, in the not too far distance, we see that he, uh, uh, Paul is closing out another letter, and we find that all he mentions about Demas is that Demas says hi. He's still present. And now we hear time has gone by, and now Demas has forsaken Paul in the ministry. Left him. He didn't just leave and just disappear. Paul knows why he left. Demas literally spiraled out of control and backslidden and wanted and loved the present world, the now world, the moments, the lifestyle today more than eternity. He wanted the present world and what it had to offer more than eternity. And he forsook, he abandoned is another term you can use, or uh, deserter of the ministry. Right here. Now we don't know much about Crescens at all in the scripture. But he went to Galatia. We see Titus, we know Titus because we're going to take that next book, the, a letter that was written before 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus in the ministry. So T Titus has been in the ministry as well and a co-laborer there. But he's going to go to Dalmatia, which is Yugoslavia today. We don't know exactly why, but I lean to war based on the sentence structure here. Not only does Demas leave because of the present uh, love for the world, he'd rather have to go back into the worldly life, the old life that he used to live, than being in the ministry and doing what God wanted him to do in a calling on his life. They want to go back to the old life. He, it was much, much safer. Much more freer. Why? Because why would I want to be around a, uh, in a in a uh, following Jesus and doing what God's called me to do and at the risk of my life being thrown into prison like Paul or, or being killed for my faith or being shunned or whatever reasons. Many people, as we will see in the end times, will be a great falling away of believers because the persecution will increase and people will not, if you're not strong and mature and your relationship with God and trusting of God, you will flee from your faith. And that's exactly what Demas, he wanted the world more than eternity of the things of God and the, and, the, and the blessings of God. I believe Crescens also, and maybe Titus, they may have just, the pressure was too much, they couldn't do anything, and they said, let's just leave. Whatever it was, they were in conjunction with Demas's here in the language that he wrote. But we see in Philemon, here he is, a fellow laborer. We see in Colossians 4.14, here's Demas now is just saying hi, he's present, he's around, he greets you. But now we see in the scripture, he's spiraling down to now he forsakes everything and walks away and goes back to the world. 
unfortunately, that is, that is a story for many. We must beware, my brothers and sisters. Examine yourself this day. We should all examine ourselves this day. Were you on fire for the Lord and doing what God's called you to do and you just couldn't help but tell people about your relationship and how he freed you from sin? You're always at the church. You were always doing things for God. Always talking about how God could save a, this, your neighbor and coworker. Then all of a sudden now people say, do you see him once in a while? Yeah, occasionally they'll show up. Christmas, he'll be here. Always here for Christmas. Always here for Easter. Maybe some other special occasions. They'll, they'll show up. And then a few years later, it's like, what happened to him? What happened to that family? What happened to her? Where are they? What happened to their ministry? It was so fruitful, so good, so right. God was using them in such a mighty way in the ministry. What happened to him? If we're, not a, if we're not careful, my brothers and sisters, the world will grip you like Demas and pull you back in. If you're not careful and you run by fear because of the fear of your relationship with Christ and who you, you represent, and there's persecution coming and you want to just go hide under a basket. My brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the backslidden, the, the spiraling down, will not get you the peace and the joy that you, or safety or security that you might think it will. It actually makes it worse for you. So let me encourage you, like Demas and, and others, that Paul would tell you and tell us today, as he's tell Timothy, beware, don't take your eyes off what God's called you to do. Keep focus on what he's doing, regardless of how you feel. Keep showing up. Keep doing what God's going to do. Why? As we will see, Paul is going to encourage Timothy so with encouraging words. Because we all need encouraging words today. Because it's not easy to be a Christian today as it used to be. There's very much, and it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better, I'm sorry to say. But that's why he said in verse 11, he gives a little hope. He says, only Luke is with me. You know Luke, the physician. Luke who wrote, God used to write the, the book of Luke, one of the Gospels. He was a Gentile. That got saved. And we know in the scripture that Luke was always with Paul and helping him through the misery. He was travel companions with through the missionary journeys that we see in the scripture. And he's the only one that didn't flee. Why? Well, remember, he was a physician. And in that time, he would have gone to all the schools. And the final school that you would have gone to, historically, we see would have had to take place in one of the major schools right there in Rome. So he had different credentials. They saw him look differently. He was a physician. He was a, he was a Gentile. He was part of the Roman culture kind of aspect. So they, he didn't have the same fears and concerns as the Jewish believers and others that were with, uh, with Paul. But Luke stayed faithful, and he stayed, as we see, as he's referred to as that beloved physician, right? He probably helped Paul through much of sickness. If you remember the scripture in, the, in historical picture of Paul, is he's this short little Jewish guy with weebly little legs, thin, big nose, as the scripture tells us, Right? With the, the affirmity that something with his eyes or something that hindered him in his, his sight because of the time when he was saved on the road to Damascus. Here's the man that God used in the ministry so powerfully. And Luke must have helped him physically in many respects. But he says, not only will Luke is with me, but notice here he says... Timothy, get Mark. <laughs> get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Who's Mark? 
This is John Mark that we see in the scripture. This is Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Why is that significant? Well, this is also John Mark who was the, was the uh, cousin of Barnabas. And remember, Barnabas and Paul, they were joined at the hips and they went and did the missionary trips. Now remember, between the missionary trips, they, Barnabas brought his cousin there, Mark, John Mark, and something happened on the mission field. And John Mark got homesick or he just couldn't overtake it. He couldn't take the conditions in the missionary field. He couldn't take the conditions of being threatened with his life or Whatever it is, all we know is that John Mark, Mark himself, decided to leave the mission field, and that did not settle well with Paul at all. To the point we see in the scripture, go back to Acts 28, go back to Acts 15 today, and read the accounts. Him leaving the mission field called caused Paul and Barnabas to butt heads. Why? Because the second missionary trip came around and Paul and Barnabas was going out once again and Barnabas said, we're going to bring Mark with us. And Paul said, absolutely not. Paul was so focused, I cannot take the risk on that young man again who abandoned us and deserted us the first time. We have too much work to do, and we must stay focused. And that is good, and that is right. But God used Barnabas to take this young man and continue to disciple him up, even after his failure of deserting him on the mission field. And this is the glory, this is the grace of God, if you didn't catch this before. Here's a young man who just couldn't handle the moment and went back home. But God continued to use Barnabas in his life and raised him up. And then we see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, or verse 10, all of a sudden we see the reconciliation has happened. And now we see here in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, Go get Mark. Wherever Mark is. We don't know where Mark is in the, in, the, in the countryside at this point in time. But obviously on his way somewhere, he knew that Timothy could pick him up and bring him to Rome. Why? Because he says, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Oh, I love this story. Because here's a young man who's so eager to go onto the mission field, so eager to do what God's called him to do, and the pressures of life, the fear of death, or whatever it may be, he just wanted to go back home where he's safe. Go back and do whatever, but I can't handle this. But then God's had a calling on his life, and it was only a matter of time. God was going to bring that young man back to doing what he had called him to do. And look what God did in through um, John Mark's life. He raised and reconciled or restored that young man to the point of he's back now on the mission field once again. Helpful, fruitful for the ministry of God. To the point that God used that young man to write one of the gospels for you and I. That's the grace of God. He can take a person, save you. You can stumble and fail and, and fall down and want to go back home. Just stop doing ministry. Stop going to church. You just, I, just, I, gotta, I, just wanna, I just wanna go back and do my old thing. But once you're saved, my brothers and sisters, you can run, but you cannot hide. And God is lovingly going to come as a father to a child, to a son, to a daughter, and he will discipline, he will bring back, he will restore, just like John Mark. And imagine what incredible thing that God can do in and through your life for the kingdom of God. Amen? Some of you have those stories. Share those stories. Share the witness of what God can do to restore 
a man's life for the purpose of God. Then we see in the scripture here, in verse 12, that Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. So God, I mean, Paul sent Tychicus out. There was a purpose. Why? Was Tychicus was another very faithful traveling companion of Paul. We see that in Acts 20, verse 4. He was used multiple times as a messenger to go take letters to these different churches to go and get the word out of what the teachings that they needed to hear. We see that in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4. But he also, he had been sent by Paul to go to Ephesus. And we see in the scripture in Ephesus 6, verse 21, we also see in Titus 3, 12, where it looked like a prearrangement that Paul, God was going to use Paul to use Tychicus to actually minister as an elder there in Ephesus. But he's with Paul now in Rome, and he's going to now use him to give this letter, 2 Timothy we call, to take over to Timothy to encourage him to come and to replace Timothy as the elder of that church in Ephesus to keep things going. And that God, that's Paul, sent him deliberately over there to make sure Timothy could come back. Now, I love the humanistic here piece of Paul. Because not only does he clearly says, look at the people who have abandoned me. I really need you, Timothy, in my life at right this point in time. I'm about to die. I really want to see you. And I want to be able to help and keep the ministry going. He never lost focus on the God's calling and the, and the work of God. He makes sure, that, you know, Timothy just doesn't get yanked away. He's going to make sure there's a good, solid, faithful minister, Tychicus, to be in place. But then he gets even more practical in verse 13. He says, bring the cloak, man. Bring my coat. <laughs> bring the cloak. And I left that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come and the books and especially the parchments. He's so, it's so practical here. Here's a man, he says, if you remember a cloak, it was like a poncho. I call it the poncho. It's, you know, it's a big, very heavy um, uh, goat's hair. It was so stiff you could stand it up, but it had a, a hole in the middle, so you slid it over your head and it kind of went all the way down past your knees, and it would keep you warm. Here he is, a man who's in a prison, a dungeon, it's cold, it's whatever it is. He needed his coat. He was probably very, very cold. And Paul knew winter was coming. And so he said, Timothy, I need to see you. Bring the cloak. Where is it? Well, it's with this man named Carpus, a faithful man. We don't know much about him other than he was a faithful and a uh, probably the honest man because Paul left the very most important, valuable items with this man when he left. Now, why did he leave it? Some believe it's because he got a heads, uh, a, kind of a, a heads up or a word that they're coming to arrest him. And the last thing he wanted to have is on his possessions is for his cloak to be taken, his books to be taken, and his parchments to be taken. These are valuable things as a man who studies the word of God. Some people go, my Bible, I don't know where it is. I, I think it's somewhere around the house. I might have left it at the church. When's the last time we went to church? You know, some people don't even know where their, their, the, the Bible is. Not Paul. Paul knew exactly who he left it with, an honest and faithful man, Carpus. That's all we know. And we see that he says, bring them to me, Timothy. Paul was continuing to be a student of the word of God. Even though he knew he was about to die, what did he want in his possession before he died? What's his request? That will tell you his priorities. Get me Timothy, the one I love. And get me my Bible. Because I want to be in the word of God when I come and are ushered into the heavenly. I want to be reading the parchments, which is the Old Testament that he had. 
He wants the books. These are probably, some believe, the Gospels, or at least parts of the Gospels. Bring them to me, Timothy. I want to be reading the Word of God when I'm ushered in to see my, my Lord and my Savior. Oh, I want that to be my, my closure of my life. I hope it's a rapture as I'm reading the Bible. <laughs> and the twinkling of an eye happens and I'm in the presence of the Lord. That would be my ideal. Amen? Are you with me? But if this old body is going to wear out sooner than the rapture, may I be reading the word of God Continuing to share the word of God to my wife, to my children, to my grandchildren that are by my side. Oh, there'd be no greater way to go. Because it'd be waking up in the presence of the Lord. What security and what peace that I have knowing. That's where Paul was. Paul wanted Timothy to bring Mark. Bring him with you. Bring the cloak, bring my books, especially the parchments, bring it all. Because I believe once you're the student of the word of God, it is a lifetime pursuit of being, of studying the word of God. It's not you study the word of God and then you get saved and then you stop. Or vice versa, you get saved, you start reading the word. And then at some point you say, I'm good, I've read through the Bible and I'm, I'm good with that. No, once you are a child of God, one of the biggest indicators you will know and I see in the life of a person who truly has been regenerated, born again, is the love for the word of God. You can't get enough of the word of God. You always know where your Bible is. You know you're always talking about the word of God. You know you're always pondering on the scriptures that you were able to memorize. You couldn't wait to hear the teaching of the word of God. It is a clear indication of a healthy, mature Christian. Period. There is no greater indication that you are a child of God and you're mature and growing is the hearing and wanting to hear and read the word of God. There is no greater indication I've found being in the ministry over all the years. I hope that's, that's you. If not, you will grow and mature to the point where you cannot get enough of the word of God. It's transforming. Paul knew it. I hope you knew it. And we see here in verse 14, he continues and highlights and continues like a father to a son, like a, a pastor to the sheep. He's always warning of the dangers. And we see it in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith. Now in the original language, it could be metal worker, not just a coppersmith, but a metal worker. But someone in the trade there. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. <laughs> Paul's praying that God is going to deal with that man based on his works. Ooh, that's a, I, I hope that ever, you know, that'd be, that'd be terrible. Verse 15, you also must be aware of him, Timothy. You must be aware of him for he has greatly resisted our words. Now, Alexander the coppersmith, this may be the same man named in Acts chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, or more than likely he is the same man that is named uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul mentions Alexander as someone whose faith had spiraled downward to a point where he now was against Christians and going against Paul and anything he was teaching and he was going everywhere to try to discredit and come against him. If you remember in 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, do you remember what Paul said about this man, Alexander? He said he, Paul said, he basically said, I took my hands off him and I turn him over to Satan. Whoo! That would not be a good prayer. But that's sometimes what happens. Someone who refuses and goes against God, and you just 
step back. Basically, the coveting and the protection, you're just stepping back. Satan has free will for that person. Very, very, very sad. Now Paul warned Timothy about this same man. Paul simply wrote that Alexander did mean much harm. What kind of harm could he have done to Paul at this point in his life? Many believe and suggest that the phrasing here says that he informed many things against me. Many believe that Alexander showed up for that hearing in Rome with Nero. And he sat there and went against Paul and became an accuser of Paul so that Paul would guarantee would be sentenced to death. Now, I, I think this through a little bit this week. Here's Paul been trying to work with this man, and finally Paul says, I'm going to turn you over to Satan. And Alexander says, I'm going to come back after you with such bitterness and such anger. I can see it happening where he showed up for that hearing and went against Paul and twisted everything. Remember, Alexander in the scripture says he blasphemed God. So anything Paul was saying, he was twisting that in front of Nero and in that court system and turning it against Paul so that Paul would guarantee would be sentenced to death. And that is what I believe Paul is saying to Timothy. He did much harm in the things that he said in front of that first hearing. But what is he, how does Paul respond to the fact that this Copper Smith, Alexander, he says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. You will reap what you sow. It will come back to get you. The apostle had no desire for personal revenge. He didn't sit there and say, how can I take Alexander out? He says, no, I'm just taking my hands off. Let Satan have him. He didn't come around and do anything other than say he did much harm. So we know that Paul's heart was the fact that I don't take revenge. God is the one that's going to do the work. I don't have to get revenge against someone who comes against me. God is going to take care of this situation for me. We see it in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's why we don't have to fight against flesh and blood. We don't have to look for vengeance against people who come against you. You can just say, God, you let them, you take care of whatever they're doing. It's, it's between you and them. I'm going to stay right with you, and I'm not going to be bitter and angry and revengeful. I am going to let you deal with the situation at hand. And may that be us as well today. And then we see in verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. So you can see the heart of Paul here. He says, you know, that first offense, I needed people to come. Remember, and you can picture this huge Roman Colosseum. You can see Nero sitting at the very uh, front and, and all the, the lawyers and everything flanking them. And then right in the middle of this column, this, 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 this trial location, there's a spot there and the person who's being accused would be sitting right there and there's a dome on top and the light would come shining down on them and on the columns on the left, the women would be on one side, the men would be on the other side and they would all be witnessing and watching the trial taking place. And here's Paul sitting under that light, that natural light coming down. There's Nero. And here comes the accuser, Alexander, I believe, and probably others. But here... No one, no one came to the defense of Paul. No one. They all forsook him. He had no one there to help him in defense of his positions. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you don't know this, but I'm writing this to you. No one stood with me. And in my darkest and deepest time of my life no one was willing to stand with me all forsook me but Tim, but Paul didn't say God deal with these people 
No. God actually, Paul actually said, because of the heart that this, this godly man had, may it not be a charge against them. God, please, don't hold this against my brothers who forsook me. Don't, God, please don't do that. I might be standing alone. No one stood by me. Many times in our most lowest and darkest of valleys, you're going to find in your life, you are going to be standing alone. You're going to find yourself alone in those moments. No one's going to be there to help you. Even if they are around you, you feel alone and you feel like there's no one there for you. But everyone's against you. That's what happens when you're in your lowest of points. But remember, Jesus went through those deepest, darkest of valleys as well. He stood alone. He suffered and died alone. We see in Mark 14, 50, then they all forsook Jesus and fled. He was going to get crucified and all the disciples scattered. All those men who walked with him for three years, he was pouring into their lives and the ministry and Jesus as well was left alone. So Jesus understands where we're at when we feel alone. And at our darkest points and valleys of our life, because they will come, Jesus understands you. This widespread desertion of the apostles may be explained by the fact that unlike the period of his first imprisonment that Paul went through, there was a lot of persecution for being a Christian. We see in Acts 28, 22, everyone was talking about the sect, about their religion. Don't go near it. Don't even be associated with them. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse. But Paul never lowered himself to go against God and his love for the people. He never turned on the people who loved him and was there with them, even though they all forsook. Just like we see the words of Christ on the cross in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That was Paul. God, they just don't know what they're doing. Don't charge them for them, their desertion or their abandonment of me. Why? Because we see in verse 17 why. Look right there with me. But the Lord stood with me. Everyone else left. Everyone else scattered. Everyone was in fear. Everyone didn't want to be associated. But doesn't matter. Paul knew. For the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. In your deepest of darkest of valleys, my brothers and sisters, the Lord is with you. He's with you. And he will strengthen you through that valley. He doesn't promise you to keep you from these valleys. He just promises to walk you through these valleys. You must, by faith, trust him as Paul did. And notice what Paul says here. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Picture him. He's talking about standing there in front of the judge of Nero who hated Christians and wanted every reason to kill him. He says, everyone else forsook me. No one was there to help me. No one was there to encourage me. No one was there to do anything to represent me. But the Lord was. And he stood with me while I was standing alone. I was there and he strengthened me, kept me holding up and standing in front of this judgment, waiting to see what was in my fate. And he says, I was there and look at here. And notice in the end, last part of 17, so that the message, the preaching, the gospel might be preached fully through me. 
and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Picture it, my brothers, my sisters. Here he is standing alone, and he knew the Lord was with him. He knew the Lord was strengthening him, and he knew the reason why, because he was going to continue his ministry, and his ministry was to what? Preach the gospel to who? The Gentiles. There were thousands of Gentiles lined in that, Colise- that, that, uh, that building listening to this trial taking place. And, he, and every word he was about to say was re- being recorded. And he, God gave him the strength to share the gospel right there. He didn't sit there, well, you know, I was trying to help people be nice and socially gather together and try to divert away from what his purpose and mission was. No, he stood firm and said, I preached Jesus Christ and him alone. And God strengthened me to do it. And God delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. Some people think, different reason what the lion is. I believe the lion is literally Nero, <laughs> who is he was standing in front of. Some people say out of the mouth of the lion, we see in 1 Peter writes to it, 1 Peter 5 eight, that is Satan. I lean toward the fact that he was referring uh, to Nero. But you can choose whatever you want to do on that one. But Paul's courage in proclaiming the gospel was not hindered by the weaknesses of those around him or who fled from him. Did you hear me? When a man or a woman is called in the family unit to be that mom and be that dad, you know that the Lord is going to be there with you and strengthen you, regardless of what happens around you because you do it for the Lord. Here is a pastor. Paul was encouraging Timothy and sharing with him as a witness what God has done for him even in the most deepest of valleys right there in front of someone who wants to kill you was proclaiming the gospel anyway. May that be our testimony, my brothers and sisters. That we would stand strong in the Lord. Because the secret to his ministry was his dependence on the strength of God. On the grace and the strength of God, Paul, that is where he got his strength to continue to walk with the Lord and continue to do what he's called him to do. We see that played out in Philippians 4.13 and 1 Timothy 1.12. But no one was there for me. But I got to continue to preach the gospel anyway. I love it. That's a man's man, man. He was going to do, in verse 18 he says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about this. As he's writing, he is so pumped up. There's no question in my mind. This man is so pumped up writing this letter, even though it's his closing letter, his final words he's giving to a son that he loves so dearly, recognizing all the people that he poured into it, fled and left him. It did not matter. It still brought him, and it should bring us to the point in our deepest of times, we still want to worship God. We see him right there. The Lord's going to deliver me. I'm not worried about the situation I'm in right now. The Lord's going to deliver me. He's going to preserve me. Where? He's going to preserve me for the heavenly kingdom. Why? Because Paul was so heavenly minded and so understanding and such a a confidence in the fact that he knew absent from this body he would be in the presence of the Lord and the Lord was going to bring him home. He had nothing to worry He is being preserved. Yes, the body is going. Yes, they'll behead me. But I am preserved for the heavens. This is temporary. I 
I love. And then he walks right into to him. To Lord Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praising him in the middle of just reflecting of all the deepest of darkest valleys he finds himself in. I mean, think about this. He's sitting to his, saying to God to be glory and ever, forever and ever, right? Some people think this man is crazy. How could he be so optimistic, so joyful in such traumatic, deep, dark valley they're in? How can they be optimistic and joyful in such a terrible situation in their life? He's about to die. We better hope that the, gallant, the, the guy with the axe is going to be on his game and he's going to sharpen the axe and hit it once and take out the head off at once. Not hit it a few times. Let's get it over with. But think about it. Paul was so optimistic and joyful that it's almost unthinkable for most people. Here's a man, the personal closure here. His letter that he's writing, he finds himself in all of these accounts that he's talking about being alone, left alone or penniless and friendless and possessionless, cold and without adequate clothing and, and, and just, just absolutely knew he was going to die. That was his life at the end of his life. And he's still so optimistic and joyful because he knew that he was going home. He was going to heaven. And he was going to be with his Lord and Savior for eternity. Is that your understanding, my brothers and sisters? Do you realize that speak should speak to you and I as well? As we watch this world come unglued. And you may find yourself, whatever reason, in the darkest of valleys. Cancer is set in. Loss of job. Loss of family. Whatever it may be. Just know, as a child of God, the Lord is with you. And he will strengthen you. Keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on the future, your home. And you too will be strengthened through that darkest valley. He'll walk you through it. He will guide your life. Trust him. As Paul has trusted him. And then verse 19 he kind of closes up and he makes, as he does with all of his letters, he just wants to make sure he calls out some names. He says to Timothy, great, Persica and Aquila and the household of uh, Onesiphorus and uh, Eridus and stayed in Corinth, uh, Corinth and, and but uh, Trophimus, I have left in uh, Miletus sick. He kind of sits there and if you remember, uh, Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila that we see in the scripture was this husband and wife team that assisted Paul in many ways. You can go back in Acts 18 and Acts uh, Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16. This is where Paul meets this couple who loves the Lord and is just doing and doing the work of whatever God's called them to do, but they own a tent business. And they were in Rome, but remember under Rome history, we see in the scripture, um, they had to be forced, all the Christians had to leave Rome, and they went into to other parts in Corinth where Paul meets them. Paul starts becoming a tent maker because by being a tent maker and working for their, in their business would provide for the ministry so he could continue to preach the gospel, have work to be able to provide for him. Then they went to Ephesus and they went back and forth. These faithful couple just what went wherever the Lord needed him to go and do, continue to do the work of the ministry. And Paul was just right there with him, just a close relationship. He's sitting there telling Timothy, hey, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila for me there, and the entire household of Onesiphorus. Why? Because he just been a faithful guy. His family was faithful, always right there beside me. Uh, you're uh, uh, you're Eurystus, I think how you say it, the pronouncing in the emphasis, um, stayed in Corinth, so he said, you know, he understood where he is, so Timothy knew where he was, and then Trifer, uh, Tri, or Trophimus 
was left in Miletus sick. So he's telling Timothy all of these things going on. Now it's interesting. I'll, I'll take this point, and I know we're coming to a closure here, but Trophimus, he was an Ephesian, and he was a friend with uh, Tychicus, who Paul sent to replace Timothy so Timothy could be free. We see that in Acts 20, verse 4. But this guy helped Paul in the ministry. Now, why was he significant? If you remember in Acts 21, verses 28 and 29, this is the guy who was with Paul that caused a huge riot in Jerusalem. So they, they, they had some fun in the ministry together, causing riots, uh, sharing the gospel. But this is a faithful guy to, uh, to Paul, and he was talking, Paul was talking about where he was at. But it was interesting is that he um, left here, as we see the fact that in Miletus, that he had to leave him there because he was sick. He wanted to probably bring him to, to Rome, but he was sick. Now, you have to think this through a little bit. Here's God used Paul in a mighty way to lay hands on people and was getting healed all through his ministry. And so many people will take this, this scripture and say, well, there's a teachings or churches out there that says, if you're a Christian, you should never be sick. Or you should always be healthy and wealthy and wise. Blab it and grab it kind. But they forget the scriptures, don't they? Here's Paul. He had a, an infirmity and he asked God three times. And what did, you, what did God come back? No, no, and my grace is sufficient. We see here, why didn't Paul heal his good friend in the ministry? Because Paul didn't determine when he was going to heal. God only leads you if you have the gift of healing, to then lay hands on someone. And it's God who heals people, not you. So if you're listening to teachings out there that says, oh, we got to go see such and such because he heals people. No, he doesn't. Only God can heal. Don't go follow those types of pastors or ministers. Only God heals. So many people say, well, I don't see miracles today. Well, I'm still here. Obviously, it's a miracle. He's been healing me. For all my life still. What do you mean he doesn't heal? Why, wouldn't I, why, didn't, why didn't I die of all the flu, flu seasons of the past? Why didn't I die of all the, some kind of sickness and all the other things that I may or may not have had? Why didn't God kept healing me? So many people think, well, we don't see miracles today. Well, if you're a statistic kind of guy, go back to Acts. Count all the healings up and look at the time frame that that, that that time covered and it may work out to be one healing a year. That's all it is we see in the book of Acts. But so many people just think if God was, did miracles in the past and he doesn't do miracles today that you just don't understand the scripture. Just keep showing up. Keep listening to the word of God. He'll straighten those False teaching and false understanding out. It's only a matter of time. But it was the will of God that some men should be allowed to be ill and to stay ill because God uses even illness in people's lives to lead other people to Christ. To show his strength and his, his ability through someone who has an infirmity. And she, people will look at their life and see joy and peace and promise and of eternity. And that leads people to Christ. God has a reason for allowing health, uh, ill health and can use it for his glory. Not every sick person is supposed to be miraculously healed. We ask. By faith you ask. If you're sick, you're to come to the elders. They're to anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, and ask God if it's your will to heal this person. Heal them now. When's the last time when you were sick did you come to the elders and ask for anointing of oil by faith and ask God to heal you? That's not a condemnation. That just tells you where your faith is. 
It just tells you where you believe in the scriptures or you don't believe in the scriptures. That's all that means. It means to test yourselves and say, God, I want to have a deeper faith to know and trust that I can come and do exactly what your word says and you may choose to heal me. And this is where Paul says to Timothy, do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. These are probably believers in the Roman church there. He's encouraged Timothy, come. You don't have time to waste because when winter sets in, the the boats don't sail. Everyone's locked down. You're not going to get here. I don't have that much time. But all these guys are greeting you. They're encouraged. We can't wait for you to come. But think of Paul's heart. Think of the emotion behind as he writes these things. And finally, verse 22, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Timothy. In the language, the Greek language, that's a singular your, your spirit, Timothy. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will touch your spirit and be so close. You sense his presence and grace be with you. And that's in the original language is plural. Grace be with you all. You, you and me, grace be with you. So be it, he says. Amen. So be it. The last words of Paul. A man reflecting who simply loved Jesus and recognizes it's only by the grace of God that he did what he did during his life he was a murderer not only just a murderer he murdered Christians he forced Christians to blaspheme God he brought them so that they could be killed he watched the first martyr Stephen die and even Stephen said God forgive them for they do not know what they do This is the man of the grace of God over this man. And it's the grace of God that's going to be on you and me to be able to continue to live a life that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. It's only by the grace of God, my brothers. It's not by the law. It's not by works. It's only by the grace of God. And the letter is speaking to you and I as a church today. It speaks to me as a pastor because here's Paul writing to a pastor to encourage him in the faith, to continue to, to provide and to take care of the sheep. This, these letters spoke to me more than anything else. But it also speaks to you as a church body. It's by the grace of God that we continue to go with, with great anticipation with optimism and joy that we are going home and we will be in heaven. The Bible does not record the final days of Paul, but here he had his personal closure and his final thoughts that he wrote out to Timothy and the church. And yes, Timothy and the others, devoted believers carried on the work as we see in the scripture. God may bury the faithful workmen but the work continues as God leads and you and I must be faithful so that even if the Lord does not return and rapture us out of here sooner than I hope (laughs) and he tarries longer I want to make sure future generations may hear the gospel have a place to come and gather in his name and worship their God. I hope that's your, that's your, your hope as well. Because this generation and the generations we've seen, they need hope. And the only hope you can give them is Jesus. Amen.